portrait, and I think most of you have been around for uh, various portions of this. Our goal every week, and if you don't have one of these um, study guides, I would encourage you to pick one up. They're at the welcome table. It'll help kind of guide you through each week. Our goal every week is to kind of take some aspect of faith in Christ or some conception about Christianity and just try to make it clear. In other words, there are a lot of misconceptions about there. People often wonder, like, why would you go to church? Like, what is this for? Our hope each week is to say, this is what we are for, we believe, here at Bethany. Um, Today's subject is about anger. The question that you will see if you go into the study guide is, is why is God angry all the time? God's anger appears to be punitive. It appears to be this, like, wrathful, like, kind of, like, how is God so angry? What do we do with that? Uh, Now, that's both like kind of this like existential kind of out there question. If you're a Christian, you've probably heard different teachings on this. Most of us, all of us, should be connected to people who are not Christians, and we should be able to say to them like, well, yeah, that is a hard subject. So at the top, we just need to say like anger is a difficult subject no matter what, particularly in our Western context. Anger is an inherently negative emotion. Nobody talks about having a good tantrum. Nobody talks about a good version of anger, and yet I think the scriptures call us toward that. So often what we associate anger with is just purely negative, purely spiteful, purely individualistic, kind of wrathful stuff. For example, I got to take my kids camping a few weeks ago. And any of you who have taken small children camping know exactly where this is going. We're setting up camp. We're kind of out uh, past Black Diamond, a campground called Silver Springs. Has anybody been there? It's wonderful car camping. This is the stage of life that we're at where we just need to keep it all in the car. So we're going out there. We get there. We start to set up camp. Lo and behold, it's not raining. Shocking. That was amazing. And uh, it's my wife and our three kids. The puppy came too. More stories about the puppy yet to come. And my mother-in-law came. My mother-in-law is a great gift giver. And so she brought gifts for my kids to help distract them during the setup portion, right? Like this is not her first rodeo. She's done this before. So the gift is chocolate milk, which is my favorite drink. And I love chocolate milk. I don't love chocolate milk in this story. Because the chocolate milk was given to various children. I will leave the child's name out of this that was the perpetrator of this. But at one point, I'm setting up the tents. I'm tired. I'm kind of frustrated. It's getting cold. It's getting dark. You're kind of racing against time, you know, before the light goes out, all that kind of thing. I'm frustrated. We realized uh, later on that we had forgotten a heavy coat for one of our kids. One of our kids just had kind of a light raincoat. And it's starting to get kind of cold. And you're like, oh, great, like parent of the year. Here comes CPS to arrest us. Like we forgot a coat. Or the one coat that we brought was just this lightweight raincoat. So the chocolate milk is going around. I'm kind of distracted. And I set up like our big family tent, right? We've got our big tent. And we've got kind of the little backpacking tent that I grew up with. I go in the big family tent. And there is chocolate milk everywhere. It's like chocolate milk got murdered in this tent. It is flung on the walls. It is all over the floor. And guess what was also on the floor? The one coat for this one child. This one child looked at the one coat we brought for them and said, you know what this needs is some chocolate milk. And just doused it with chocolate milk. I was as angry as I've been in a long time. And what's underneath that anger? I'm embarrassed that we didn't prepare that well. I'm frustrated. I'm tired. I'm blaming things. And I just explode, really and truly. Pastors can explode too. We have a pulse. We're human. So I took a walk. It was a 25-yard walk over to the bathroom. 
because it's car camping, remember, bathrooms. And I'm just standing there at the bathroom sink, like trying to get the chocolate milk out of this raincoat, like, oh, stupid kid, blah, blah, puppy, blah, blah, chocolate milk. And I just take a deep breath, look at myself in the mirror, and kind of go, is this how I want this trip to start? Like, really? Is this, is this how I want our inaugural camping trip as a family to go? No. So I go back, catch my breath. Hey, everybody, family meeting. Let's all get together. And one by one, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I apologize to each member of my family. It felt like it was important to do that. And then later, both uh, my wife and my mother-in-law said, oh, we get it. <laughs> like, you had every right to be upset in that moment. I want us to hold on to that for a minute because for most of us, if you think about your history, your legacy, if someone were to give you a piece of paper and say, look, no judgment, write out all the times that you've been angry, most of us would have a list of things like the chocolate milk infraction, would we not? Like we would have things that are, in hindsight, kind of silly, like you kind of get it, but you're like, really, I got mad about that, like come on. They're kind of puny. They're certainly individualistic, like this was an infraction against me, like I took this against myself. Our ledger is filled with these individualistic moments of anger, selfish moments of anger, anger that's just kind of colored by our sin. There is no such ledger for God because his anger isn't like that. It's not individualistic. It's not selfish. It's not focused on chocolate milk. God is capable of anger, and that is very clear in our scriptures. And so what we're going to talk about today is kind of this misconception that God's anger is only spiteful and mean, and then talk about it like it really is, that it is an expression of God's love. It's his response to injustice. If you want kind of an operating definition for anger today, it is God's response to injustice. And he has every right to get upset and to seek justice when he is confronted with injustice, because it's contrary to his kingdom. Before we go into our outline, which is there in your bulletin, I just want to say this too. Why should we talk about this? Why, like, how could this be helpful beyond the walls of this room today? It is a huge turnoff for people outside of the church to think of God as angry. If they have kind of a smorgasbord in front of them to be able to pick various gods to worship or to follow, the God of Buddhism, the God of Islam, the God of all these various traditions, pagan gods, they would not pick the God of the Bible. Many. Because God is angry. God is wrathful. Who's going to pick the angry God? Why would I want to go toward that? Those of us who do follow Jesus Christ need to be able to say, yeah, I get it. And we will talk about how we can kind of graciously say, yeah, I get it. And then to be able to address that through the truth that the scripture presents for us. So this is important not just for our thinking, but for the way that we try to encounter neighbors who might not otherwise want to talk about this subject. So let's try to help people through this discussion. So outline in your bulletin, yes, I'm the son of a bunch of lawyers, so here you go. We're going to talk about this like it's a great episode of Law and Order. So you can picture the dun-dun, the piano playing, right? First, we're going to talk about the prosecution's case. Then we're going to talk about a little kind of filter through which we need to read the lens of God's anger. That's in Hebrews 1. Then we're going to talk about the defense, and then we're going to hopefully arrive at a conclusion. All these are available in your bulletin. Again, if you need a Bible, it's there in the back. The first place we'll stop is Exodus 34. So go ahead and turn there with me. The case being stated 
prosecutor comes up to the bar and says, here's my case, state your case. God's anger is retributive, spiteful, and destructive. In other words, the only way we can understand or interpret the places in the Bible that talk about God being angry is negative, negative, negative. It's inherently negative. Now, at a shock, this may shock some of us. <clears throat> at a level, those accusations are not wrong. In other words, the case that's being brought by the prosecution, I think we can honestly say there is people of faith and go, eh, it's, it's in the Bible. It's, it's largely true at a level. There's a deeper level that we need to get to, but a level, I think this is really important in our conversations of people far from God. We need to be able to say to them, yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Quick flyover of some places that people are really challenged by God's anger in the scripture. I'm just going to list three. There are many more I can list. In Numbers 31, a group of people called the Midianites are wiped out because they led Israel to sin against God. God's anger kind of instigated that. Deuteronomy 20, God tells Israel to wipe out the seven nations in the land of Canaan because he's angry over their pagan worship. In Joshua 7, an entire family is killed by stoning by the people of Israel throwing rocks at them. And the result of this is the Lord turned from his anger. So all throughout these very violent moments, anger is a theme. Anger is real. And, then let's, and we're not even getting into some of the other texts that talk about God's anger in connection to divisiveness between people groups, between prejudices, between all these types of things. The point I'm trying to make is that the prosecution's case has real merit, and we need to be able to say that. It's hard to argue, and especially if you're a Christian, it is okay to say, yeah, I see your point. The scriptures do point toward a God that seems to be angry. In the public reading that we had for us that Ryan just shared, God is describing his character to Moses, one of the leaders of Israel, right after a moment where Moses got really angry. So the wider context for that passage is this. Moses is given the Ten Commandments by God. Remember Charlton Heston up on Mount Sinai? He gets these two heavy stone tablets. He comes down the mountain to share this like, incredible gift with the people of Israel. And what does he do? He gets so mad because he sees the people of Israel worshiping a pagan god. He smashes the Ten Commandments, just breaks them apart. Moses is capable of anger. And so in the reading we heard for us, God comes to him and in God's mercy says, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments again. Haven't changed a thing. Here's the same stone tablets, basically. Here you go. You need to use these as a leader. So he forgives Moses of his anger. He gives, God, he gives him the Ten Commandments, but this is interesting. It's almost like God's signature at the end of the Ten Commandments is the passage we just read for us. What does a signature say? A signature in your email says, here's my name, here's my title, here's my contact info. It's attributes of kind of your work persona. In this situation, God is signing off on the Ten Commandments by saying, here's who I am. And we read through these, and Jesse, if you could put them up on the screen again for us. Exodus 34, just looking at verse 6, there's the word anger. Now why, if you're signing off on something as important as the Ten Commandments, would you talk about your anger? Your email signature at work does not say, Travis, prone to anger at chocolate milk, sometimes mercurial around his children. Like, it doesn't list these things. Why would that be in this moment? Think about the rest of the context of the passage. There are other traits in this passage that are good things. I'll read this for us so we can just kind of wrap our heads around it. This is Exodus 34, Starting in verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, he's talking about himself, a God merciful and gracious, and then slow to what, church? Slow to anger, 
abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These are good things. Do we not want to worship a God or follow a God at the very least who is merciful, who is gracious, whose anger, and it is a real thing, is a slow burn, is an anger that is sort of buttressed by patience. That's different than saying that someone you know is an angry person. It's different when you say they are slow to anger. There is a level of of measuring in their anger. They bring their anger about at a measured pace. Keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. These are all aspects of a character of God that I believe the Bible presents consistently and that Christians worship faithfully. But anger is implicit in that. It's not absent from God's description of God's character. So what do we do with that? And what do we do with the latter part of verse 7 where it basically said, and God's anger is going to keep rolling. Don't mess with him. He'll take you out mafia style. We have to recognize this. And this is where we make the transition to kind of this second point of reframing anger. The prosecution has made its case. Now let's talk about reframing anger. We have to hold on to this description that God gives us in Exodus 34 as an incomplete description of God. Not imperfect, not unhelpful, not outside of the bounds of who God is, but an incomplete, only seeing a portion of the picture of who God is. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, or Hebrews chapter 1. Flip on over to the New Testament. We're skating back and forth between the different ends of the scripture. In order to be able to have a clear assessment of this case, we really need to have all the pertinent facts laid out in front of us. So just looking at what we've seen so far is not the whole picture. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, this is a letter, we don't know the author, but it's written to people who would have been familiar with Moses, with the Old Testament, with the things that we just read. The writer introduces it this way, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but In these last days, he has spoken to us by who, church? By a son, the son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory in the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. How many of you have uh, brothers and sisters? You probably heard before, oh, you look a lot like your brother so-and-so or your sister so-and-so. How many of you have identical twins? Are there any identical twins in here? Okay, I didn't think so. That is a different level of reflection, right? You look like your brother. You look like your sister means you share certain characteristics and certain traits. But if you have an identical twin, that's a very different matter. You two literally reflect the same image out to the world. That is who Jesus Christ is described as here. He is the reflection of Almighty God. He is the exact imprint of God's being. He is high definition, 4K, 100% clearly, this is who God is. So if Jesus is God's fullest and most precise representation of himself, if that's over here, what's all this stuff that happened before? What's all this stuff about Moses and about anger and about who God is by implication? If Jesus is the full and complete picture of who God is, everything that has come before him, we don't throw it out. We just say that is an incomplete picture of who God is. It's getting us there. It's useful for understanding who God is, but it doesn't arrive us at the fullness of who God is. That alone belongs to Jesus Christ. 
So when we read things that have come before Jesus Christ, including the passage we just read from Exodus, including the ones I referenced from all over the Old Testament of violence and all these terrible things, we need to be able to say, yes, those things are real. Yes, those things are true. But that is an incomplete picture of the fullness of who God is, of the totality of who he is. It's not wrong. The Old Testament isn't wrong about God. Those statements about God's anger are not unhelpful. We need them to be able to understand who God is. They're just incomplete. And so to really understand where God is coming from as it relates to anger, we need all the evidence we can possibly get our hands on. And that evidence isn't just a book. And that evidence isn't just a series of ideas or statistics. That evidence is a person. So turn with me to Matthew 21. We're making our transition now to point three. We are whipping through the points here, you guys. There must be a football game on. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12. This is when Jesus has come into Jerusalem. It's near the end of his ministry. The cross is before him. He's not there yet, but he's come in. People have thrown him a parade. And then as someone who worshiped in the Jewish tradition, he would have gone to temple. And here's what happens when he goes to the temple. Verse 12, then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. Selling and buying what? We'll talk about that. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Years ago, I got to go to Italy and see the Pieta. Have any of you been there in the Vatican? It's an incredible sculpture from Michelangelo. It is a depiction of Mary holding Christ. It's, it's, it's so powerful. I get chills just thinking about it because of how lifelike it is. And, and Christ is emaciated. He's spent. It's after he's been on the cross. It's this wonderful, it, it is one of the most breathtaking works of art I've ever seen. And it's, it was behind a pane of glass at the time because some crazy guy had broken into the Vatican and actually come at the Pieta with a hammer. Do you guys remember reading about this years ago? He managed to get like one little chunk of it off before like a horde of security guards tackled him. And so there was this glass in front of it. And that was fine. Like, I get it. It's like bulletproof glass. Like, let's keep more, you know, crazy people away from hurting the Pieta. But what Jesus experienced is a little bit like that. He came into a place of worship. The Pieta is in a church in the Vatican. He came into a place where he had an expectation of being able to worship his God or to be able to see something beautiful, like I was expecting to be able to see the Pieta. And what he found, instead of this unimpeded access to God, was a bunch of goofballs selling t-shirts or hats that say, I got to see the Pieta. That's what was happening in the temple. There were impediments after impediments to people encountering God. You could have your money exchanged there. It was almost like there was an ATM when you first walked in. If we had that here, that would be a little strange. Please give to Bethany. Cha-ching. There were money changers. There were people selling doves. They were selling things that theoretically were helpful for worship, offering a dove, offering an animal and sacrifice that would have been normal at the time. But to buy it in the house of worship to exchange goods and services there, that just would have felt wrong to Jesus. And here's where we get back to our thesis statement. Jesus is angry in this moment. And if he is the fullest 4K, 100% clear version of who God is, is he experiencing anger and therefore God can experience anger? Absolutely. 
John's gospel records Jesus making a whip of cords and driving people out of the temple. If you do that, you're probably mad. So is Jesus mad here? Absolutely. But let's get under the anger. Why is he mad? He's mad because people are not thriving the way that they were intended to. The temple has been set on its side. It's not like he was hoping it would be. And the anger is actually an expression of his love for the people in that place. He wanted them to be able to encounter God, to worship Yahweh. He wanted to be able to do that too. And all these things were standing in their way, diluting and misdirecting the experience. One of my favorite definitions of love that I've shared with you guys before comes from Dallas Willard. Love seeks the flourishing of the object upon which it is directed. Isn't that great? Love seeks the flourishing of the object upon which it is directed. This is such a a mind-boggling thing, like many mind-boggling things Dallas Willard said. But if you think about it, it's true. If you're a parent, you seek the flourishing of your children through things that are not always fun, through discipline, through giving them rules, rights and wrongs. This week, uh, I took my kids to school. My son was running around playing, and he slipped, and he busted his lip a little bit. You may have seen that when he came in today. Uh, That's not a beauty mark. He actually skinned up his lip a little bit. So we went into the school. I had the two girls with me. Jill was teaching. So we all come in and pushing a stroller through this mob of kids. We go over to the nurse's station, uh, and Will's crying and really upset. He skinned his lip. His hands were kind of sore because when he fell, he kind of hit the deck. And so we sit down and we get him cleaned up, like I wipe off his lip, you know, gently as I possibly can. And I say to him, buddy, I'm so sorry you fell. Like, let's take a few minutes here and let's just rest for a sec. And then I said, hey, can you look up at the clock and tell me what time it is? And he said, yeah, it says 9.20. I said, okay, so we've missed the bell. You're going to miss the first part of class. That's okay. I want you to stay here in the nurse's station and catch your breath. But at 9.25, I want you to go to class. Like, I'm going to go because i got to get the girls home, but I want you, I trust you, to get out of here by 925, because you need to go be a student in your class. You don't need to stay here, you need to go. Now, my heart had a hard moment with that, because I'm like, he's hurting, he's crying, like, I feel for him, I just want to sit here and hold him for a while, and I did. And he needs to go to class. That's an example of love seeking the flourishing of somebody else. It's not about me getting him to class on time. It's not none of that. It's about you're here to be a student. Let's, let's make sure you achieve that goal. We have been in countless situations in each of our lives where we have encountered someone who is saying, I love something, I love someone, I love this, but it is not seeking their flourishing. How many selfish relationships have we all been in where we just, that relationship is about us and about our needs and about gratifying our desires? That is not seeking the flourishing of the object upon which it is directed. I love chocolate cake, but I don't seek chocolate cake's flourishing. I seek it to be in my stomach. (laughs) Love seeks the flourishing of the object upon which it is directed. Parents get this. Neighbors get this. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You don't just ignore the needs of the people around you. You stop, you reorient, you inconvenience yourself, and you practice generosity and hospitality. And so... In the temple, were those people flourishing that Jesus saw that day? Clearly not. Because he wouldn't have gotten mad if they were. They were not flourishing. They were not able to see the peyata. There's some guy up there selling hats instead of them being able to worship God. They were trapped in this weird combination of religion and religious practice and commercialism. It was really ugly. 
And so Jesus had every right to get up there and to do what he did because he came not to pass people by, but to be that good Samaritan, but to go and to seek the flourishing of others. He talked about this in Luke chapter four when he talked about the kingdom of God. He came to set captives free, to go and be with people who are in prison, to attend to the needs of the poor, to bring recovery of sight to the blind. That is not passive, that is active, and that is seeking the flourishing of the people in front of him. So he could not walk into the temple and not get mad. He could not see money changers and doves being sold. He could not encounter those things and just walk on by. And because he is the fullest expression of God and God's love, this is Hebrews chapter 1, then God, therefore, must be involved in a similar way. He must be. Anything that hurts God's people, anything that creates and sustains injustice, anything that tries to short-circuit God's kingdom, God will not stand for, and God should not. Because God alone is just. He will not stand for things that hurt his people. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to be very grateful for that. He will not stand for things that hurt and destroy us. We will go through things that are hard. We live in a world that is broken. Make no mistake about that. But he will not stand for injustice to continue to be perpetrated. And when we see injustice in our world, when we see wars, when we see kids who go to school hungry, when we see all the things that break and should break our hearts, we need to be able to say, God, I don't like that either. How can I partner with you? How can I be a part of your solving of this injustice? It's not about us running off and figuring it all out on our own. It's about saying to God, how would you have me step into this? Unlike human beings, unlike me with the chocolate milk, God's anger is purposeful. And so when we read about him being angry in the scriptures, guarantee you 150% it's pointing towards something. The blood and the violence of those examples we listed from the Old Testament point toward the blood and the violence of the cross. They do. And it's not pleasant. It's not fun to think about. But this is a pathway, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to be able to say to friends, say to friends outside the church, I get it. I understand that it looks really bad. I understand that God looks spiteful and angry and all the things that we've talked about this morning. But it's not like my anger. And it's not like your anger. It's not petty. It's not punitive. It's laser focused on righting wrongs. And God alone has the right to do that. So, a couple of very practical takeaways from this. God's anger is a response to injustice. We talked about kind of praying through that whenever we see injustices in our lives or when we see something we know isn't right. Surrendering that to God. First step is get underneath your anger. Ask yourself, why am I angry about this? It is possible when you're angry to stop and go, why am I so upset about this? It might require you walk into the bathroom and cleaning up a coat for a little while, like, but you'll get there. And if you invite God into that moment, there will be clarity. I was uh, swimming uh, this summer at a neighborhood pool, not our pool, but another one. And uh, I saw a dad that I didn't know and lifeguard and some other people kind of hanging around and I'm doing laps. And I see this dad and I can relate. He's having a bad day. One of his kids was kind of kept following him over to the lap pool And he was just like, I can't, you can't come in here with me. I'm just going to swim some laps. I just need a few minutes. He looked totally exasperated. And if you're a parent, like you get it, like you've been there. You're like, oh, preach, brother. 
But then he took it a couple steps too far. He, he really laid into his kid, like almost yelling at him, using very strong language, kind of berating this poor kid, right? And again, whether you're a parent or not, you can relate to that feeling, not just of his anger, but of how that kid feels, right? And so I'm a little embarrassed and maybe a bit ashamed to admit, I thought about saying something to this dad, saying something like, I get it, I understand, I hope you'll go talk to your son later and tell him how you really feel about him, how you love him. I didn't go talk to him. I think I will next time. But it was a moment for me to invite God in. And I think if I had done this, I would have actually taken that step. God, this just feels awful. This feels unjust. This does not feel right. I know that dad's having a rough day, but would you let me be a part of your solution here? Would you use me? And if God says no, God says no. You know, trip on down the road. But if we stop, I believe if I had stopped in that moment and I had asked God for clarity around that, I might have had the courage to step into it or I might have had that affirmation of like, oh no, now's not the time. We need to be able to surrender those moments to God. Pray, God, what is my anger really about? I wish that guy, I wish his anger really would be coming from a better place, but it's not. What's my response to the situation supposed to be like? And let me just encourage you one more time, church. Be gracious with yourself about your anger. I shared earlier about the chocolate milk. We all got stories like that. Very few opportunities have come in my life where my anger has been motivated by injustice, where it has been rightly motivated. So be gracious with yourself. If you're having a hard time thinking of moments when you've properly used your anger, you're not alone. You're not alone. It's hard. I am no expert at it. So part one, get underneath your anger. Ask yourself the question why. Part two, employ your anger. Put your anger to work for you. I come from a family of origin where anger is a universally negative word. We're supposed to be dispassionate in what we talk about. I mean, this is lawyers, right? If you are angry about something, pray about it, get under it, ask God for wisdom around it, and then ask God if God would use that. Maybe like in the conversation with the guy at the pool, maybe you've read an article in the paper that makes you really mad. Maybe you're upset about the way that one of your coworkers was treated. Maybe there's just something that breaks your heart and you can't figure out why. Ask God to use that anger. If that anger is the horse that can pull your sled toward justice, do it. There was an article that went around the Seattle Times uh, last week and then for the months prior around the Seattle freeze. Did you guys read this? It was a woman who moved here like a year ago. She very much experienced the Seattle freeze and she got upset about it. And so she wrote this editorial. And apparently that editorial got absolutely pummeled in the comment section and online. And she had her contact info up there. And so people were sending her flame emails. Such a Seattle thing to do, right? Like, come on. And so my thought about that was, if people were mad that she was saying our city is unfriendly and people don't, you know, they don't welcome me in, all this kind of thing, what if I read that and I got mad about that and I said, yeah, I think I am a very friendly person, doggone it. What would I do about that? I, I would hope that we as a church would make a bunch of great meals and we would bring people in who might feel lonely. And we would say, you're welcome here. You may be experiencing the Seattle freeze, not here. Come on in, have a seat at the table. You're going to chop those onions and you're going to use your anger to make that soup, but it is going to be so good for that person to feel welcomed in. That's a way to employ your anger. There's so many different ways to think about that, but I would just consider you, ask you to consider doing that this week. Finally, remember this, and we'll close with this, and I'll invite the band to come join me back here on the stage. Anger is not the end of the story. 
Anger and wrath are not how it finishes in the scripture. The way that it finishes, the end, is God uniting all things to himself. The way that it ends is not with the cross, is not just with the death of Jesus Christ. It ends with the resurrection. It ends with people being set free for the kind of life that God has for us. And so if you've been going through a season where you just feel angry all the time, you are not alone and it is not the end of your story. And if you have long been a part of churches where it just felt like everybody was angry and how could I possibly invite someone into this faith, remember that on the cross... The anger and the wrath of God fell upon Jesus Christ, not because he deserved it, not because it was fair to do so, but because it would bring flourishing to us and to anyone who calls on Jesus' name. God's anger found its place to fall, and it didn't fall on you and it didn't fall on me. It fell on the one who rescues us and who loves us. And rather than explaining away anger, he entered into God's anger. And he held it because he could. And so this week, would we go and be a people who think of the cross, who are reminded of the cross as this place where God's anger was blunted and received by someone who didn't deserve it, and that has set us free for all time, for the purposes of God? Would you go forth this week, church, mindful of your own anger, knowing that God feels it and he is with you in it, and that we have a high calling through the anger, and through everything that we feel to bring glory to God. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for this word. Thank you that it's tough to get our heads around this and to get our hearts around this. We ask God uh, not to never feel anger. We We don't want that. We want to feel as whole people how you are calling us forward, how you are calling us into greater and greater understanding of ourselves and the world around us so that we can be your servants, so that we can see injustice and have the courage to step in and say, you know what, that's not okay. And may we surrender those moments that we were thinking of as we're talking about injustice. May we surrender those things to you. May we surrender our hope for our world to you that one day there will no longer need to be any kind of anger because all injustice will be gone, all fear will be gone, all pain will be gone. And until that day, would you touch each of our hearts and call us into deeper partnership with you through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.